Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this week's podcast. My name is Josh and I'm part of the core community of CMYK. We're a bunch of people in Billings, Montana, creating space and community where belief and doubt move forward together. One reason I love CMYK is for the people that are here. Before we jump in, I want you to know everything we do as CMYK depends on a generous donation from our local and online community. People just like you who are working with us to live a more beautiful way forward together. So if you love what CMYK is up to and want to be part of the community on a financial level, we'd encourage you to contribute by going to cmykchurch.com. Through your donation, we are able to continue our work and give away more and more of those in need around us. You can easily give a one-time gift or choose to be a regular part of our creation through a monthly gift of any amount. To those who are giving, thank you. With that, let's jump into this week's talk. Hey, so tonight uh, we're jumping into a new series that uh, we're simply entitling Be Love, Duh. And if uh, you've been around CMYK very long, which uh, most of you have looking around the room, uh, this idea of being the embodiment of love, being someone that is loving and receiving love is nothing new. And it's a part of the work of what we call CMYK as a whole. The reason that we gather, the reason that we exist in Billings, Montana, is to see this happen. That we have these ideas of working to be honest, working to be open, or excuse me, working to be present, working to be honest, working to be open, that we can find our lives in this place where we become the embodiment of love. And as I talked about last week, that the point of all of those things, present, honest, and open, is that we would find ourselves in this position to be this embodiment of love, and that we would actually see it happen because of this thing called CMYK in our lives, potentially. There would be some unique invitations because of it, because of CMYK. And the thing that I, I just want to start this series off with is a is full-blown understanding that I know that nobody in this room tonight needs to be convinced that this is a good idea, that this is a good way to live your life. Most of us have probably experienced love on some level. We grew up in some sort of loving household or have experienced relationships with love, or we've seen stories, interacted with stories where love is present in the story. And there's something that resonates about love for us within our humanity, that most of us And most of humanity, on some level, if they have the language to put to it, would say, this is the kind of person I want to be. I want to be a loving person. And even some of the most grotesque, broken, destructive things that we've seen happen in our humanity throughout history have potentially even had this word love attached to it. It doesn't make it love, but it shows that even in these moments, there are people that are choosing to affect others in a certain way. And the reason is because this is for your own good. This is the best way. This is the way that it has to be. This is out of love that we're choosing to move in this direction and see this happen. Nobody in this room tonight needs to be convinced, hey, you know what should be a good thing for your life is to be love. And so if that's not the talk, and if that's not the direction that we're going, We need to talk about, okay, so how does this actually uh, come about in our lives? And how do we see this happen? And the reason the how is such a big question for many of us in this room, and even conversations I've had with some of you in this room, is because we struggle to actually physically figure out what this can be. Because we know what it's like, potentially, to work to be the embodiment of love, but to actually see destruction come out of it. 
We know what it's like to interact with somebody. Let's just say on the most basic level, we're walking down the street and someone is asking for money. They're homeless. They need something. Well, a good, true, loving act, would it not be to give the thing that that person needs and wants, desires? And so there's this part of us that goes, well, yeah, that's what you have to do in that moment. But we also live in a culture and we live in a world where we start to question some of those things. And we ask ourselves the question, is this really the loving act? Is this really going to help this person in the way that's tangible and going to see them be on a better path in life? Or am I simply, as some would say, just enabling, simply just continuing to invite them on the same path that they've always been on or that they're currently on, that this isn't actually a loving act? Many of us have struggled it when it comes to close friends or family, potentially. But again, there's a request, there's a desire. Hey, I need this. Would not love be this knee-jerk reaction to say, you need it, I wanna be this person of love, so I'm gonna be there for you, I'm gonna help. But how many of us have had these moments where we ask ourselves the question, is this really love? Is this really helping? Is this really serving and seeing this person move forward in life? So for many of us, we struggle with this concept of being the embodiment of love because we actually want to help and we're not quite sure how to go about that. The other reason that many of us can potentially find ourselves in this place of struggling with how to go about this is because to be the embodiment of love can get exhausting when we think about this. To be somebody that is continually giving of themselves over and over and over again can just be tiresome. And some of us have spent seasons of our life, potentially, years of our life. Maybe some of you in this room are in this place where you just feel exhausted because it feels like all you do is consistently give and give and give. And it's out of this desire, this good desire we all have. I want to be the embodiment of love, but yet all I am is tired. (laughs) I just need a nap is all I need, if I'm honest. And so to be the embodiment of love quickly becomes this thing where we start to back up from it. Because we realize, one, I'm exhausted, and two, and again, some of us have spent years of our life potentially looking on an act or a way that we lived, being the embodiment of love, and we go, did that actually do anything? Did I help? Did I serve? Did I move things forward for people? And so because of that, what we can find is we live in our head or in our heart with this idea of love. We feel it. We desire it. We think about it. But it's hard for us to physically tangibly find ourselves engaging this work in our world today, potentially. And so we got to talk about it. We got to figure out how do we tangibly and physically go about this thing called love, if this is what we're to do as CMYK. And tonight, I want to just kind of give an overarching statement that really is for the whole series, that for the next, this week and then the next three weeks, that this is really what we need to know and what you need to know because I really believe it when it comes to this idea of love. And it's simply this, that to be love is to be healthy. And we've got to understand that. And I really, really believe this, that love is something that is a part of our humanity, yes. And to do it in the right way, to do it in a proper way is actually to find health for your life. Not exhaustion, not unsustainability, but to find health for who you are and the relationships around you. And so everything that we talk about tonight and the next few weeks, I hope you know that this is the point of why we're talking about it. Because to be loved is to be healthy. And the way that I like to think about it is like breath. That with breath, you have an inhale and you have an exhale. And there's a healthy way to go about that. 
And that breath is something that impacts our life and our health in more ways than most things that we interact with on this planet. The way you breathe matters for your health. I think we all get that. And there are some unhealthy ways to breathe. And that you could breathe in such a way where you are always giving. You are always exhaling. And maybe you have these moments of short little inhales, but eventually you cannot sustain that. So if you want to play along, you can. Be careful, but don't pass out. You can exhale. <sighs> inhale. <sighs> exhale. <sighs> inhale. <sighs> exhale. <sighs> inhale. <sighs> exhale. <sighs> inhale. <sighs> okay, okay. You get the point. You can also do the same thing when it comes to inhaling. And love can be a similar concept in our life. That there's an unhealthy way to approach this and an unhealthy way to approach your life where you are consistently exhaling, giving, 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 and it's not healthy. And that the core of what this thing is, is health. And the same is true for inhaling. You can be somebody that is consistently inhaling, asking, asking, I need this, I need this, believing if I just, if I just, if I just, and you consistently believe I need to just inhale more and more and more and more and more and more, and then I can exhale. No, health would speak to, no, there is a rhythm to how you're going to go about this. And to be loved is to be healthy. So how are we going to go about this? And how do we find this? Specifically, when we look at the most basic level of how we relate with the people around us in our relationships. For me, this is something I've spent, honestly, a lot of time trying to wrestle with and figure out. If to be loved is to be healthy, how are we supposed to go about this? And one of the more fascinating moments that I've found is in the Gospels. There's this interaction that Jesus has that maybe you've interacted with before. It's kind of this side thing, a side story that happens that many of us kind of forget. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark. But tonight, to look at this interaction in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, In Jesus, he's out and about, he went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So hold right there. Here's an interaction that if you've spent any time in the Gospels and read any stories of Jesus, this is another day at the office for Jesus. This is just him going about his business. There are crowds around him and there is someone that approaches him with a need, with a want, with a desire. And even the want and desire that's asked is not this outrageous thing that Jesus doesn't know what to do with. This is something we see over and over and over again in the Gospels. There's demon possession, and Jesus is the guy to go to. And so, of course, this woman is going to come to Jesus and say, Hey, yeah, you're the one. I heard. You're the guy that's going to fix this problem. And so this is just a common occurrence, everyday life for Jesus. But Jesus responds differently. It says, But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples eventually came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now, I love the response of the disciples, because for them, it's not like, hey, can you help this woman, please? You know, you see her, she's crying, she really needs some help. No, it's just like, she's bugging us, can you get rid of her? That's the response of the disciples. But Jesus continues to ignore her, and eventually, he responds and he answers to her. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what's happening here? This is a Canaanite woman, so someone from a different culture, a different tribe. And she's coming to Jesus, who's of the house of Israel, and asking for help. And Jesus' response to her is, I'm sorry, I was sent to the people of Israel, not to you. 
is this Jesus just being a tool? Is this the moment? Gotcha! You know, the people that don't want to follow Christ are like, see, I told you this guy. Is this Jesus, is he hangry? Does he need a snack? What's happening here that Jesus would be in this place to say no to this woman? Again, all over the place, Jesus says yes to everyone, but here he is saying no to this woman. Well, honestly, there's a lot of cultural context of what's happening between this interaction, Canaanite woman and Jesus, that, that, is, that is taking place, that we don't need to go into tonight. And ultimately, what does end up happening with this story is Christ does respond to this woman and heal her daughter. But it's not without pointing out this fact in this moment where Jesus looks at someone in need and says, I'm sorry, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, Jesus is communicating very clearly, I know that you think that I'm here to serve, to save everybody. In fact, how many of us, when we think about the life of Christ, this is the guy that is for everyone, is it not? Even people that don't want anything to do with Christianity, when you think about loving people throughout history and humanity, Jesus potentially is one of those people that's at the top of the list. If he's not top, he's definitely getting up there. That here's a guy that when you ask the question, does Jesus love everyone? Well, of course, yeah, Jesus loves everybody. Is Jesus for everyone? Yeah, Jesus is for everybody. Does Jesus want to see everybody healed, whole? Yes, of course. But here in this moment, Jesus says no. And he's saying no because he's communicating, I've got a limited scope here. So while I am for everybody, while I do love everybody, while I do want everybody to be healed, yes. This is something where you need to understand, got a limited scope. It's something I, I, I don't think many of us have ever thought about too much before. If Christ is for everybody on planet Earth, and 2,000 years ago, Jesus was this guy that walked the planet and was loving and the peak of what it looked like to be the embodiment of love. Then there's some really interesting things we've got to note. Moments like this, where he says no to somebody. We've also got to note and understand that Jesus spent his time in the Gospels, in a certain area, in a certain region, that this was kind of the path that he traveled according to the Gospels. And what's interesting about this is that this time in history, 2,000 years ago, if you're somebody that wants to have the most impact, if you're somebody that wants to reach the most people on planet Earth, this is not necessarily the region that you would go. This is the Roman Empire. There are other larger cities. We don't see Jesus going after leaders and kings. We don't see Jesus trying to have court with Caesar to try and say, hey, if we're going to change the world, I got this plan. If we're going to change the world, we need to get the leaders, the powerful people around the table and have a conversation and start to move pieces and get some money and influence and make this thing happen. We do not see Jesus do that. We see him travel to some smaller towns and villages for a couple years. It was within his scope. It was within his travel ability to go to many other places than he chose to go. Why? Because Jesus had a limited scope. The guy that we say did this better than anybody else chose to say no to somebody and chose to spend his time and his life in certain areas and regions that were not the most influential, powerful it towns of the culture. It's a fascinating thing. It's fascinating to me because what we know is throughout human history, 
humanity started hundreds of thousands of years ago, and you were born into a family, potentially, if you were lucky. And there was this family unit that you would interact with, and that was your life, interacting with, surviving, relating with this family unit, however big, however small. And then things began to progress for humanity. And we started to see ourselves not just within family units, but we started to see other family units kind of join in, or family units would grow to the point where we became a tribe. And it was no longer just a single unit that could fit under a tent or a cave, if you want to say that. It was no longer just a single unit, but it was something that had multiple growing people there. And then tribes eventually evolved and changed and progressed that all of a sudden we have towns and we have cities. And in fact, what we know, historically speaking, is that the first city that we know of on planet Earth, the first recorded and documented city that we have is from the year 3700 BC, so quite a while ago. And what you see, there's that little yellow dot over in the Middle East. This is the first recorded city is Eridu. And Eridu had a population, a booming population, the first city on planet Earth of 6,000 people. It was Laurel, Montana. <laughs> but this is the first documented occurrence of a city. Thousands and thousands of years ago, this was rare. This was uncommon. And what we know is that when we look at today, when we try to document cities, we no longer deal with six to 10,000 people. Those giant red dots, those are million plus populations of people that we have seen humanity go from the state of a family unit to a small tribe, to a larger tribe, to a city, to now all of a sudden there's metropolitan areas with millions upon millions of people. And what this shows <clears throat> is that currently there are 54% of the world's population that's living in cities. And what we know is that back in the 60s, it was actually only 34%. So it's been a strong ramp up just in the last few years. And most projections are putting that by the year 2030, 75% of human population will be in large urban areas. So again, not 6,000 people, Laurel, Montana, but in million plus populations is where most of humanity will be found. But our connection with each other and the expectation of how we relate with humanity around us has gone from a small family unit to all of a sudden there are millions of people, even in Billings, Montana, 100,000 plus people around us that we are physically interacting with potentially every single day. And then you throw in this thing called social media. And social media has done something that it's no longer about the physical space that you live, as humanity has always been when it came to connecting. All of a sudden, social media has created this expectation and this, this idea that I can be connected with anybody from anywhere at any time. It doesn't matter where they are on the globe, that I can be connected with them. Relational expectations of a small family unit hundreds of thousands of years ago, and relational expectations of you and I in this moment and being connected to anybody and everybody on planet Earth. Those are two different things. And what many of us know and what many of us struggle with is I 
want to love everyone. The billions of people on planet Earth. How do I live a life that is truly this embodiment of love? And it's this moment of Christ for me that I find so significant and fascinating. And it's actually the life of Christ that I find so significant and fascinating because if he wanted to be a global icon by the time of his death, it would have been really difficult at this time. But he didn't do it in the way that you're supposed to do it. He had limited scope. And it's verses and moments like this where he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There's something to that for me. And then, a few years ago, I ran across the work of a guy named Joseph Myers. And Joseph Myers took this thing called proxemics, which is spatially understanding a room and how we relate with one another. That you have public space, you have social space where you can begin to talk and interact, you have personal space. These are all words that we use on a regular basis. It was in the 60s that uh, someone coined these phrases in proxemics. And then you have intimate space where somebody is just all up in your business and they better be really close with you or it's like, get away. Those kinds of interactions, intimate, personal, social, and public. And what Joseph Myers did is he took these spatial awareness of how we interact with humanity and he decided to do some study and research on relational dynamics and he decided to bring the same language and categories for how we choose to interact with humanity. So you have public relationships, social, personal, and intimate. And a public relationship is this space where you don't know everybody's name, but it's this place that you find belonging. It's a place that you find connection and relationship, potentially. And a public relationship is something like going to a Denver Broncos game and wearing blue and orange. That's the Broncos colors, correct? All right, good. Nailing it. And you find yourself in this place, decked out in blue and orange, and you see all these other people in blue and orange, and you feel a connection with those people. You high-five in the parking lot if you win. That you understand, you and me, same team, and you feel this relationship. You don't need to know their name, you don't need to know anything about them, but you feel this connection. This is what the Apple computer company has done so well. That to purchase an Apple computer or to purchase an iPhone is not just a phone, but you actually feel like you belong. You're in the cool club. You are now an artsy, hip person that's creative. So, of course, you have an iPhone. So you see somebody else with an iPhone or a Macintosh computer, and you're like, oh, yeah, you get it. And you feel this belonging. You don't need to know them. But then there's also these spaces of social relationships. These are spaces that you walk into, and you know the barista behind the bar at the coffee shop you go to a few times a week. You might know a couple things about them. You might be able to ask, how are the kids? This is somebody that you know at the office. This is Ted. And you know that Ted loves football. So you have a conversation with Ted. Hey, how were the games yesterday? And you have this interaction because you know Ted and you know a couple things about him. It's a social relationship. But then it moves into this space called personal relationships. Now all of a sudden you know that Ted has kids and you know Ted's kids' names. And you know what grades they're in. And you know some things and details about Ted's life. This is where most of our friends and family exist within our lives. That we can keep up with what's happening in their lives. We can ask questions. We can have long conversations, go out to dinner with, and continue to interact on a regular basis with these people. But then you have this fourth space known as intimate relationships. And this is a space where you find yourself, and for lack of a better term, you can be naked before that person. You can fully show who you are to this person, and they are fully showing themselves to you, and you are choosing to relate 
on that level. You're not hiding, you're not pretending, you're not putting on a mask trying to show yourself to be something as you can be in these other spaces. No intimate relationships, you are fully naked before them. Now this was really helpful to me to begin to understand the relationships around me, particularly in a world that continues to grow in its connections and relational expectations on my life, to have categories to put people within. But what Joseph Meyer's work did for me is not just bringing some categories and names to different things, but what he started to talk about is that if you're going to look at healthy human relational dynamics, that all of these things do not exist on the same level in your life. But there's actually a tiered approach to how you would go about these things. Then in healthy relationships, if I'm going to be a healthy person, and if to be the embodiment of love is to be healthy, I can understand public relationships, I can have thousands of those. I can have thousands of people that I'm interacting with. Hey, iPhone. Hey, football fan. Hey, someone that likes movies. Whatever it is. And we can have this relationship. Yes, that's thousands of people. But then you begin to tear down and you see social relationships and a healthy human can have a few hundred social relationships. People that you know, you might know a detail or two about, you can check in on every once in a while, but you don't know the details of their life. You don't know how their day went or how their week went all the time. You just have these social relationships and that can be a couple hundred people. And then in a healthy life, it continues to tear down and you see that these personal relationships it cannot be hundreds, and it definitely cannot be thousands, but maybe a few dozen where you find yourself in this space where you feel like you begin to actually know somebody. And then you get even further into intimate relationships, and it's two, three, four, maybe, depending upon your personality and who you are. And the reason that this was so helpful for me is because I'm somebody that has the propensity to look at my life and to look at the relationships around me because I'm somebody that grew up in a home that wants to love everybody. I'm somebody that grew up in a home with this expectation of, on my life that to be the embodiment of love is to be Christ to everybody. And what I found is that I was seeing my life in such a way that everybody I would relate with publicly... I would have this desire to begin to move into relationship with, that that was the good, loving thing. And if I got to know your name, the expectation a few years in my life, a few years ago in my life, was that we would get to know each other and we would be on this natural path where I would be somebody that to do Christ-like love is to be fully intimate with this person and that everybody that I would meet, I would find on this kind of path. And so we would be having lunch and I'd be just be getting naked before. I'm like, here I am, your turn. And of course, I didn't have very many friends at the time. But this is what I thought love looked like because there was this expectation. I got to get there with everybody. And if I'm going to be loving, everybody needs to know everything about me. And Joseph Meyer's work helped me understand this is not healthy, this is not sustainable on any level. And that we live in a world that is fully connected, yes. But that does not mean that we have to live in an unhealthy way with how we relate with each other. For me to understand this dynamic, particularly when it came to those last two of personal relationships and intimate relationships, there's a couple things that really rose to the surface for me. First and foremost, it means that it can't be everyone. It can't be everyone. Which is really freeing, but also really difficult. 
Because it's easy in a social media culture to see people over and over, and maybe some of you in this room have done it, where you get naked on a social media platform with the expectation of this is what this is for. And I understand that there are moments that we have needs, and we, you know, so we're reaching out, and hopefully someone is there to help you. But there can be this expectation that to do social media right, to do relationships right, is to be somebody that no matter who you're interacting with, that you are being fully vulnerable all the time with everybody. And this is not healthy human dynamics. It can't be everybody. And it's really difficult because it means that there are people in a connected world, in a connected culture, that you will continue to pass by every day. You will see online. You will know. But to be healthy and to be the embodiment of love means that we need to understand this can't be everybody. And there's this work of Christ of saying, i got to limit my scope here. Because to be loved is to be healthy. The other thing that this means is that it takes purpose. That there's a purpose that needs to be brought, particularly to these last two categories of relationships. Because in a connected culture, the, the heartbeat can be that it's everybody. And so it's going to take purpose. It's going to take a decision to begin to define and to begin to say, these are who these relationships are. And it might be different for you, depending upon your personality and where you are in life. But it can't be everybody. And so you purposely have to go through your Rolodex, in a way, and be able to identify and say, these are the relationships that matter, that are significant, if I'm going to be the embodiment of love in a healthy way, that I'm purposefully identifying these people in a personal and intimate space. One of my favorite examples of this comes from a story in the Old Testament of Scripture, a guy named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, this is whole, the whole book of Nehemiah is, I think, a great study on leadership in general and how to go about some certain things. But Nehemiah is a guy that looked at his people, they were living in the city of Jerusalem after it had been ransacked and totally destroyed and was beginning to be rebuilt. Nehemiah does not live in Jerusalem at the time, but he hears about his family, his people, they're struggling in Jerusalem. So he has connections with the king, so he goes to the king of the day and he says, hey, the people are just getting ransacked and there's so many people around the region in the area that don't want to see Jerusalem be rebuilt. They don't want to see the Israelites have any kind of firm footing underneath them they like the idea that Israelites continually are at the bottom of the social pyramid. And so they're continually being attacked and torn down. So Nehemiah goes to the king and says, this is not okay. I want to go and I want to build a wall around the city to protect it. Now, in a political world, walls can be a touchy thing. I get that right now. This is much different a few thousand years ago what's taking place. Because this wall is going to communicate to everybody else that this is a substantial thing. And they're safe. And this is a place that you can go. And so Nehemiah goes back, gets the king's blessing, actually gets some resources to go and begin to build this wall. But again, he can continually attacked, and there are those that are coming against this plan and this idea. There's this moment in the book of Nehemiah towards the end where most of the wall has been rebuilt. And there's these two guys that come, and they are people that have historically not want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And they come to Nehemiah with a request. It says, Sambalot and Geshem sent to me, Nehemiah, saying, come and let us meet together at Hakfarim in the plain of Ono. Not related to Yoko at all, just so you know. 
but they intended to do me harm. So Nehemiah is on to them. And his statement is what I find so significant. And I sent messages to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Nehemiah has chosen. He believes that there is this calling, this purpose in his life, and it's to rebuild this wall. And he has this moment where somebody else shows up with another plan, another idea for his life. And the invitation that they have is done in a proper way. But he says no to them. And the reason that he gives for saying no to them is he says, the thing that I'm doing right now, it matters too much for me to get off of this ladder and to go and spend the time meeting with you because to do that would be an abandonment of this work that I think matters so much. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. For me to see and understand the personal and intimate relationships in my life is to understand this kind of moment with Nehemiah and to look at certain relationships, certain friends, family around me, and to identify them, this is a great work. These relationships matter and are significant. And to say yes to these relationships in the healthiest way for them and for me is to say no to hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of other potential relationships. Now, do things change? Yes. Do people move in and out of these spaces over time? Yes. But to be loved is to be healthy. And to do that, we have to be able to have the kinds of purpose and the kind of statement like Nehemiah says, where we are spending our life here and something pops up on our screen. An invitation pops up through email. A new opportunity pops up over here. And we go through this process of being willing to say no. How many of us know what it's like to start every single week with all of these desires to get all of these things done. This is what matters. This is how I want to spend my time and energy. And we get up on the ladder only to go, oh, that person, that person, this thing, that thing, this invitation. And we find ourselves consistently in this place where we're not actually on the ladder doing the work that we believe to be a great work. We're just consistently getting down the ladder to go address this. Then we start to, oh, oh I got to go do this over here now. To be loved is to be healthy and to do this well it takes purpose. And behind the good yeses in our life are hundreds of no's. The last piece for me that this has been so helpful with is to understand that love is outside yourself. <clears throat> One of the things that I found happened in my life multiple times <clears throat> is that I know the desire within me to spend my time and energy around people that look like me, talk like me, think, act, believe like me, laugh at the same inside jokes as me, that I, I, I find such connection with that. And the propensity that I found in my life, I found it multiple times where I began to look around at these personal and intimate relationships, and all of a sudden, everybody's in that space of looking, acting, thinking, believing like me. And they really like me. They think I'm cool, and they think I'm funny, and what I have to realize in that moment 
is I'm working to be the embodiment of love, yes, but potentially all I'm loving in that moment is Matt Blakesley because <laughs> I've just found people that reflect me back to me in the way that I like. And if we're going to do this Christ-like love in a way that is truly emulative of the life and teachings of Christ. That love is a giving force. I believe that there has to be this understanding of everybody in those spheres and in that space cannot be like me. In fact, one of the conversations I had after the morning gathering was this quote from uh, Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton. And he talks about it and he says, as humanity continues to expand and connect with more and more people, we just have a propensity to connect with only those that we like. And so, yes, we live in a culture and we live in a world where I can connect with anybody. And my propensity is to always only connect with those that are like me. That's not always an unhealthy thing. But my question in the midst of this, is there somebody at this table, personal relationships, maybe not intimate. You can grow towards that. It takes time to get there. But is your enemy is someone that doesn't think like you, believe like you, vote like you at this table, and you're choosing to relate with them. Because that is where we become the true Christ-like embodiment of love. We're not just loving ourselves. We're choosing to love those outside ourselves. To be loved is to be healthy. And tonight we come to this table of bread and juice. And the invitation is, this is the body of Christ broken for you. It's the blood of Christ shed for you. It's Christ breaking his body open and pouring himself out for the suffering of the world. And what I know is that a statement like that can be really motivating in, a, in our head and in our heart. But what I believe and what I've seen is to break myself open and pour myself out for the suffering of the world. It needs to look more like this, specifically when it comes to those personal and intimate relationships. That this is just not a banner statement. But am I someone that's breaking myself open and pouring myself out for those in that intimate space and in that personal space? And it can't be everybody, but it can be somebody. And is there somebody at this table that's reflective of this belief that it should be a couple of my enemies, a couple of people that don't think, act like me. And so tonight we come to this table and we partake in this meal as a reminder into that invitation. And my hope is that it would not just be this blanket statement of pouring yourself out for the suffering of the world, but that there would be names and faces and people that you would say, I'm doing a great work And this bread and this cup is a reminder of that work and those people. For many of us, potentially, hopefully, that could be this thing called the CMYK community. Again, you're not going to be intimate with everybody, and maybe you start out in a more social space, but that we come to this space where we're able to know each other. Need anything? What can I do for you? And that's what this table would represent for us as a community tonight. As always... All are welcome to come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and receive. Thanks again for tuning in. As always, if there's anything we can do for you, please reach out on social media or through our website at cmykchurch.com. Also while there, 
you can figure out more about who we are, where we're headed, and how you can get plugged into or give with this unique experimental church. Have a great week, and we hope to see you soon.